of Speaking, a monthly podcast on the spoken word, episode number 42, July 2021. Law Talk, a conversation with Pamela Keller. Hello again, Paul Meyer here. Welcome. Last month, I told you about my trip through Arkansas, observing how in the American South, the pronunciation of words in the Price family varies. Drawling words like time, tide, live, bribe, my, try, where the vowel is followed by a voiced consonant or none at all, is almost universal in the South. But Southerners don't necessarily do the same when unvoiced consonants follow the vowel, saying right, ripe, like, life, slice, etc., much as the rest of the country does, without that delicious drawl. It varies considerably. Well, just a week later, I was talking with an old friend from Kentucky, a retired emergency room doctor who saw a hundred or so patients a day from all over the region. He told me that he could actually determine what part of the county, not just the state, that patients lived, just from their pronunciation of light, like, life, and slice. Those words where voiceless consonants follow the vowel. This is yet more evidence of how very difficult it is for dialect coaches like me to get it right, when accents vary slightly from town to town and from sociolinguistic considerations. And how difficult it is to achieve that ultimate goal, coaching actors to the point where they can fool the native speakers. So, actors should use my two manuals, the American Southern Dialect and the Deep South Dialect, available from paulmeyer.com and Amazon, as a starting point. They should look for good models for their specific characters, state by state and county by county, from among the many real-life samples on idea. Okay, now, as usual, guess that accent. Last time I played this idea clip and challenged you to say where on the planet the speaker grew up. Well, here's a story for you. Sarah Perry was a veterinary nurse who had been working daily at an old zoo in a deserted district of the territory, so she was very happy to start a new job at a superb private practice in North Square near the Duke Street Tower. No prizes if you guessed the USA, but if you zeroed in on Wisconsin, congratulations. It was Ideas Wisconsin 9. I recorded this subject myself in 2003. The clip is actually the subject's own imitation of a much stronger Wisconsin dialect. She thought of her own as quite mild. And she thought she might have drifted west into Minnesota in her imitation, as you can judge for yourself when you play the whole sample. Go to the Wisconsin page on the United States page at Dialects Archive to find it. Now here's this month's challenge. Where did this speaker spend his formative years? 2010, I moved to London because I wanted to study in a school that was like, you know, well-known, a better school. But then I found out that the prices were so expensive that I could, I could never uh, pay for it. And I, even if I got a scholarship, I wouldn't have time to get a job so I could pay the rent. So uh, it was impossible. Get the answer next time. My guest today is Pamela Keller, a professor in the School of Law at the University of Kansas, where she teaches what she calls lawyering skills. Welcome, Professor Keller. Good to have you with us. Thank you. It's good to be with you. In a manner of speaking, examines the spoken word in all of its many social contexts. And it occurred to me that the ancient practice of oral advocacy in courts of law must be one of the most 
culturally embedded traditions in the use of the spoken word. So I'm very, very pleased to welcome you to the show as a lawyer who trains lawyers in this tradition. So uh, let's start with this question. Do the public largely understand the process or, or are we seduced by its dramatic depiction in films and plays, do you think? I mean, I think of To Kill a Mockingbird and 12 Angry Men, Inherit the Wind. Uh, all of these films shape what I think I know about lawyering skills. Is it accurate? It's a hard question to say, what do people think? I can tell you that students who come, I think, have to shift their mindset a little bit about what can be accomplished with the spoken word in court or in a trial, because what's what's depicted in movies and film do show the drama in a very condensed time period. So I think the drama is there, mm -hmm. but I think that it takes a lot more work and a lot more speech to get the effect and the result than can be communicated by film and TV. So, so in some ways, I think that the, the storytelling can be accurate, but the actual forensics or the, the way we can go about getting a particular result in court is very different in real life than is depicted. Is it just a question that movies and plays condense action, leaving out the uninteresting bits and keeping the interesting bits? We're taking out all of the boring parts and then, and also condensing even the dramatic pieces even further. So you have kind of a sound bite of that captures you know, what might have happened in two hours or even three days in a courtroom. And I also think they can change the words to make it seem a little more perfect on screen than it probably is in real life. I'm going to start with a clip that you suggested we listen to from A Few Good Men. This is copyright Columbia Pictures, directed by Rob Reiner, starring Tom Cruise, Jack Nicholson, and Demi Moore. You snotty little bastard. Your Honor, I'd like to ask for a recess. I'd like an answer to the question, Judge. The court will wait for an answer. If Lieutenant Kendrick gave an order that Santiago wasn't to be touched, then why did he have to be transferred? Colonel, Lieutenant Kendrick ordered the code red, didn't he? Because that's what you told Lieutenant Kendrick to do. Object! And when it went bad, you cut person. these guys loose! Your Honor, you had Marcus inside a phony transfer. Your Honor, you doctored the logbook. Damn it, Captain! You coerced the doctor. Consider yourself in contempt. Colonel Jessup, did you order the code red? You don't have to answer that question. I'll answer the question. You want answers? I think I'm entitled to You want answers! I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! Son, we live in a world that has walls, and those walls have to be guarded by men with guns. Who's gonna do it? You? You, Lieutenant Weinberg? I have a greater responsibility than you can possibly fathom. You weep for Santiago, and you curse the Marines. You have that luxury. You have the luxury of not knowing what I know, that Santiago's death, while tragic, probably saved lives. And my existence, while grotesque and incomprehensible to you, saves lives. You don't want the truth because deep down in places you don't talk about at parties. You want me on that wall. You need me on that wall. We use words like honor, code, loyalty. We use these words as the backbone of a life spent defending something. You use them as a punchline. 
I have neither the time nor the inclination to explain myself to a man who rises and sleeps under the blanket of the very freedom that I provide and then questions the manner in which I provide it. I would rather you just said thank you and went on your way. Otherwise, I suggest you pick up a weapon and stand a post. Either way, I don't give a damn what you think you are entitled to. Did you order the code red? I did the job. Did you order the code red? You're goddamn right I did. Powerful stuff. As a, a real world lawyer, what do you think? What do we learn from that? Is it good? Is, is it deceptive? What? Just watching it, I still get chills. And I think every lawyer sort of dreams of having the moment where you get the confession on the stand. Right? And yes. then you push someone to the brink and they just explode. I suspect most lawyers go through their whole life without that actually ever happening in the middle of a trial. And of course, in most criminal cases, the person that you could really do that doesn't testify at all, right? So the, mm -hmm. the defendant doesn't typically testify. But, you know, there are pieces of that. I will say the, the work that leads up to that moment, you know, I think there are moments where people do confess, do where the truth comes out. It just isn't quite it just doesn't really happen in the courtroom. By the time you get to the courtroom, you're trying to piece it all together. And then the lawyer's left with helping the jury infer that he ordered the code red. Mm. The, you know, the, the general just doesn't spew it. In fact, a lawyer on the other side just would prevent that from happening um, in most instances. Yeah. Yes, yes. So, I mean, you're interested in the hallmarks of exceptional advocacy. So do Tom Cruise and his character exemplify exceptional advocacy? Well, I think what it does show is the flexibility and the ability to emotionally be in the moment with that witness that you're having, um, that you're actually questioning. I think most people would completely underestimate how difficult it is to ask questions the art of asking questions is something that trial lawyers, you know, develop um, their craft over a lifetime, I think. Mm -hmm. And and everyone agrees that you really have to do it a lot in order to get good at it because you can't really be thinking that much in the moment. You have to be listening and reacting. You can't sort of plot the questions that you're going to ask in that moment. You have to do all the plotting before. But if there is an opportunity in the middle of a trial for someone to really admit something, to get a strong admission, it's probably going to happen unexpectedly. And you're going to have to feel that moment and ask the right question or push at the right times to get them past something they've already said. Because, of course, witnesses have all been interviewed before. There's already a written record before mm -hmm. you get to a trial. So you're going to have to get them past something that they've already said, or they've admitted something and you're just sort of having them reiterate testimony and they're going to try to explain it away. Mm -hmm. So I think he does, he does sort of evoke what trial lawyers aspire to be, which is in the moment. And I yes. think that, take, that takes a lot of time. That's just not something a lawyer can do the minute she graduates law school and hits the courtroom, you know, that, mm -hmm. that really takes a deep level of knowledge of people, of the law. So what are some of the misconceptions that the public uh, might, might have about the lawyering process? I think one of the biggest misconceptions, and I think that um, you know, certainly the media generally or what people see on 
TV and in movies is that the advocate has to be particularly aggressive or bullying even in some ways. Bullying doesn't typically work. There's really a lot of skill in terms of listening, understanding, asking the right questions, pushing, but not necessarily bullying. In kind of the the everyday civil case, people have different versions of a story. They're not always flat out lying. And so the work of a lawyer on a day-to-day basis is is to get at their story. They might have convinced themselves of a truth that isn't actually a truth. Um, And so a good lawyer is really trying to look at the evidence and really trying to figure out what what the real story is. And sometimes you can get a witness to the true story if you... If you understand people, if you understand their motivations. Yes, you talk about being in the moment, very similar to the actorly skills that I teach, uh, being being in that moment, not following the script, not being predictable, seizing, seizing that moment. Interesting. Let's listen to a very different case. Uh, this is the, uh, the People versus Larry Flint. This is when the Reverend Jerry Falwell sued Hustler Magazine and Larry Flint for, uh, I guess, what was, was the suit? Sure, the suit was about intentional infliction of emotional distress, but the case is sort of known for being about free speech. Let's listen to the little clip. This is Copyright Columbia Pictures, directed by Milos Forman, starring Edward Norton, Woody Harrelson, and Courtney Love. A political cartoon that's over 200 years old. Um, it depicts George Washington riding on a donkey, being led by a man, and the caption, the caption suggests that this man is leading an ass to Washington. I can handle that. I, I think George can handle that. But that's a far cry from committing incest with your mother in an outhouse. I mean, there's no line between the two? Uh, no, Justice Scalia. I would say there is no line between the two because really what you're talking about is a matter of taste and not law. Uh, as, as you yourself said, I believe, in Pope versus Illinois, Uh, It's useless to argue about taste and even more useless to litigate it. And that is the case here. Uh, The jury has already determined for us that this is is a matter of taste and not a matter of law because they've said that there is no libelous speech, that nobody could reasonably believe that Hustler was actually suggesting that Jerry Falwell had sex with his mother. So why did Hustler have him and his mother together? Hustler puts him and his mother together in in an example of literary uh, travesty, if you will. And what public purpose does this serve? Well, it serves the same public purpose as having Gary Trudeau say that Reagan has no brain or that George Bush is a wimp. It lets us look at public figures a little bit differently. We we have a long tradition in this country of satiric commentary. Now, if if Jerry Falwell can sue uh, when there has been no libelous speech purely on the grounds of emotional distress, then so can other public figures. And imagine, if you will, suits against people like Gary Trudeau and Johnny Carson for what he says on The Tonight Show tonight. Obviously, when when people criticize uh, public figures, they're going to experience emotional distress. We all know that. It's the easiest thing in the world to claim, and it's impossible to refute, and that's what makes it a meaningless standard. Really, all it does is allow us to punish unpopular speech. And and this country is founded, at least in part, uh, on the firm belief that unpopular speech is absolutely vital to the health of our nation. Thank you, Mr. Isaacman. That was Edward Norton defending 
Larry Flint and Hustler magazine against Correct. Jerry, Jerry Falwell. The issues, of course, are fascinating and yeah. are, are worthy, worthy of, of debate and discussion, but we're actually focused on, on lawyering skills and, and the accuracy of depiction of the process. So that scene is actually very realistic and the pieces of the argument come straight from the argument itself. Although the, he probably spoke for over 30 minutes, the lawyer was Alan Isaacman. And mm-hmm. I think Norton does a great job of actually depicting him in that clip. But in that instance, it's very realistic. The give and take between the lawyer and the court, the questions they asked and his responses. And one of the things substantively that the court was trying to get him to do was to help draw a line. They were uncomfortable with essentially sanctioning the kind of speech that the magazine you know, had put forth, sanctioning almost sort of cruel speech, you could argue. And so they were asking the lawyer to sort of help them draw lines and What's accurate about it is how the lawyer has to really think about whether she can do that. And in the end, especially when you listen to the whole argument, the lawyer can't draw that line for the court. And you sort of have to respectfully try to answer the question without seeing it evasive. And I think the way that uh, Edward Norton is is sort of straightforward in admitting what he can and cannot do in terms of line drawing is actually really accurate. And I think the conversational nature of how the Supreme Court is with the advocates in front of them was also very accurate. That brought to mind, uh, Pamela, Bridge of Spies, the the case. You remember that? that I remember that, that the movie. movie a little bit, yes. But uh, talk, talk about an unpopular position. <laughs> the uh, the lawyer's house was came under gunfire from the public. Uh, for defending, right. for defending an enemy of the United States. We're in a moment, too, where, unfortunately, I think there's so much exaggeration or hyperbole sometimes around speech. And yes. that I think more than has been in the past, lawyers probably are worried and judges are worried about what some of the reaction could be from a safety standpoint. Um, and that's un- really unfortunate. Indeed, it is. I can't help thinking that while I was training actors in the theatre department, you were across the street in the School of Law training lawyering skills. And I'm sure that acting and lawyering skills are very similar, at least in some respects. Um, Persuasive speaking, commanding and holding attention, making the argument interesting and important when it might be just dead boring. Uh, That's right. Having varied speech dynamics, use of eye contact, just being a believable human being. Uh, What do you think about the similarities between your enterprise and mine? Very similar. In fact, we have had a few theater professors come in and do some coaching because there is a difference between being credible and appearing credible. There's a difference between having something clear in your mind and being able to say it with clarity. There's a big jump, I think, between being able to state facts and tell a story and the theater piece can help students get to the, the, the storytelling piece. because That's where it's so powerful, particularly in the trial work. Because the courtroom lawyer is not following a script, but uh, doing theater improv in a sense. That's right. And it's not easy to communicate 
your emotions sometimes when you're nervous, when your brain is also trying to remember the law. So it's not just remembering a script, but it's trying to remember layers of argument you have to pull up cases, you might have to pull up different evidence than you had planned. So your brain is trying to do a lot and think about how it presents evidence, for example. But at the same time, you have to show a level of control of your emotions, of your demeanor, and you have to be likable. You have to appear trustworthy. It's a whole suite of skills, isn't it, really? Correct. It really is. Hmm. So it's an art, it's a science. Which is it most? Mostly an art? Mostly a science? What do you think? I like to think it's mostly a science. And perhaps that's where the media portrays it, just an art or puts style over substance. Mm -hmm. I think that first and foremost, what we teach advocates uh, is that you, you have to be credible and you have to be prepared. So if you're if you're not credible, in other words, if you're just simply not truthful, you'll lose the listener, um, the jury, the judge very quickly. And if you're not prepared and you don't know your substance, then jurors see through that. So I like to think that it's mostly science. Makes me think of the actor's role vis-a-vis the audience. It's an interesting phenomenon that we do our acting in the in the darkened space, the the doing space, and the audience is in the in the in the listening or observing space, as as if we aren't all doing this together. So the lawyer is spinning a story or telling the story or creating the story, but the jury is also participants in that process of arriving at a at a, a consensual truth. I think. Absolutely. I think novices that gets lost on us, you know, when we're new at it. And it's one of the things that we do try to get students to see. I have some students right now that are interns with judges. And so they're Mm -hmm. sitting in the courtroom a lot. And we really try to get them to sit there and listen to what the lawyers are doing and observe what they think is persuasive. That's the public nature of it. We're all doing this together in an open public space, and uh, there's interesting energies going around. That's right. In, in that in that public space. That's right, and I think that's why it's it is so important for lawyers to think about what they're doing when they're not speaking, or and to show tremendous respect. You know, as we try to teach students to both the jury in the room, the judges in the room, the court reporter, because all of those things are the jury and the decision maker, the judge is, is they're feeling the impact of those things as well and sort of getting a sense of the person. And I'm sure that if the advocate is a good listener, we perceive that and, and we tend to like them. It, it occurs to me that we tend to believe people that we actually like Uh, And I believe there's been some scientific evidence of that, that uh, likability means believability. And if we tend to believe people we like, this sort of opens the door to being seduced by a clever and uh, charming speaker. Uh, So how much do we trust the oral process to arrive at the truth and a trustworthy verdict when it may, may be, like in politics, boils down to whether you simply on an animal level like the guy or gal who's doing the, the arguing? That's a tough question. Like I said, I think that's where maybe the 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 media portrays the process a little 
more um, susceptible to that where I've seen lots of students observing trials for the first time, for example, saying that the, you know, the, the defense attorney wasn't as polished, wasn't as good, wasn't as persuasive, but they won because they had the better case. Yeah, the better you know, case, yeah. Yeah, so I think that's where the three weeks of evidentiary presentation overcomes the style, right? Or just the fact whether you like someone or not. The yeah. other thing that's kind of interesting, you know, when you talk to juries after they, I think they really do spend a lot of time going through the evidence. I think it's more of the implicit stuff that we can't, we can't quite know the effect of those things. And, and in the closest of cases, I think it's impossible to know how much that that influences. It's really a great area of study. Another thing besides likability is whether someone's organized. We we have some sense that listeners are more persuaded when the person is making an organized presentation. All of those things sort of pack together. So it just means you have to be great at all of it, right? Mm. To, <laughs> to mm. sort of maximize your persuasiveness. But certainly in my experience in watching lawyers I don't see that that style wins out over substance, but when the substance is close, mm. um, I think it's hard to say whether someone who is just a little bit better at it. Excellent. Excellent. Let's play that My Cousin Vinny clip. Everyone loves this one. <laughs> this is copyright 20th Century Fox, directed by Jonathan Lynn and starring Joe Pesci and Marissa Tomei. Now, uh, Ms. Vito. Being an expert on general automotive knowledge, can you tell me what would the correct ignition timing be on a 1955 Bel Air Chevrolet with a 327 cubic inch engine and a four barrel carburetor? It's a bullshit question. Does that mean that you can't answer it? It's a bullshit question. It's impossible to answer. Impossible because you don't know the answer. Nobody could answer that question. Your Honor, I move to disqualify Ms. Vito as an expert witness. Can you answer the question? No, it is a trick question. Why is it a trick question? Watch this. Because Chevy didn't make a 327 in 55. The 327 didn't come out till 62. And it wasn't offered in the Bel Air with a four-barrel carb till 64. However, in 1964, the correct ignition timing would be four degrees before top dead center. Well, oh, uh, she's acceptable, Your Honor. It's <laughs> <laughs> oh, so funny. It just is funny for sure. <laughs> This is witness selection. So what they're portraying is when you have an expert witness, the, for the most part, witnesses are what we call lay witnesses. They don't get to state opinions. Well, I think this happened. They get to state facts. But when you have an expert witness, an expert witness gets to opine about something simply because they are an expert. But you have to prove that the witness is qualified to do so. Most of the time, the witnesses you you can do it ahead of time. Right? You can have somebody qualified on paper, but occasionally it happens in the trial itself. And here, you know, that's what's happening. They're qualifying the witness. It also, I think, shows the, the danger of asking questions, you know, of trying to 
trick a witness into an answer because you can get burned. And that's what <laughs> happens there. <laughs> it's a very risky proposition. Indeed. So let's let's finish up today by talking about how oral advocacy has changed in the uh, in the pandemic that I think, pray to God, that we're coming out of. Zoom and video arguments in trials. What, what have we learned? What have you learned from this disembodied method of argument, taking the human heat out of the equation and putting it on a, a video link? There haven't been lots of, certainly in our, in our area, lots of um, full trials that are being done online. There are problems with that because, especially in criminal trials, but there have been a lot of things that we can do online where not so much is lost. You're seeing, for example, the appellate argument that we listened to before the Supreme Court. We've had pretty regular oral arguments before appellate courts here in Kansas by Zoom. And we've been teaching students to do argument uh, by Zoom. And it's been really interesting to me in the last year because what I found is that the substance of that in that format doesn't change at all. If I had had to guess, I would have thought that there'd be some changes in terms of the substance, just because it usually happens that when you change a mode of communication, you need to adjust a little bit. But I've been, it's been really interesting to me that at least with oral argument before an appellate court, that Zoom works really well. Perhaps it's because there isn't, you don't need as much of an emotional connection you don't have to face your accusers in that instance. On appellate argument, they're mostly legal arguments based on what the law is, weaving facts, of course, but but you're talking about sort of narrower issues. So that's been interesting to me. The forensics of it have changed a little bit. In some ways, it's a little bit easier. It's not, especially for our students who have grown up in video world who are very used to communicating with people online is probably easier for them than standing in the middle of a courtroom and being nervous as others are watching you. I think for older folks, and I know for me as an older folk, it took a while to feel comfortable staring at just a little camera as opposed to really feeling present with the judges. I think there and also we're seeing with lawyers and depositions, certainly with lawyers in meetings or conferences with judges that don't matter as much, that um, I think a lot of the oral advocacy will still continue to take place by video conferencing. Of course, it was taking place before, but not to nearly to the same degree. I don't know with trials that the same will be said Uh, with criminal trials. There's just an aspect of it that you the, the defense has certain rights that oftentimes need to happen in person mm. with with civil trials. You needed parties agreement. There were just all sorts of different just a lot of hoops to jump through. So I think with the backlog, it's sort of indicative that trials oftentimes will not be suited to to the Zoom world. I can't help feeling as a as a lover of live theater as opposed to television and film that there's something magical about actually being in the same room, all the participants, all the actors in the same room. There's something indefinable that goes beyond the the simple words that are uttered, but something in the chemistry and the and the uh, and the energy that passes between all the players in that courtroom. It's it would be a, a shame if if we disembodied it forever, but certainly certainly it's useful about that. Thank you, Professor Pamela Keller, for joining me today. 
Well, thank you so much for having me. And thanks to you for joining me, Paul Meyer, and my guest, Professor Pamela Keller. To learn more about her, please see the webpage on paulmeyer.com devoted to this podcast. Don't forget to follow Paul Meyer Dialect Services on Facebook and me on Twitter at Dialect Paul. The movie clips I played, all from YouTube, are used under the copyright doctrine of fair use. My guest next month is Jacqueline Springfield, a dialect coach and theatre professor, just taking up a new appointment at Kennesaw State University in Atlanta, Georgia. As an African-American dialect coach, one topic she will be talking about, she entitles For Coloured Girls Who Love Iambic Pentameter, The Use of Heightened Language by Black Female Playwrights. Sounds fascinating, doesn't it? See you next time on In a Manner of Speaking.